I would never ever want to save anyone. What I want to do is give people choices. And the truth is that women often don't have that many choices. And so they don't actually have the options to decide for themselves how they want to manage and change their future. And what we see in relation to uh, women's economic empowerment, and in particular into entrepreneurship, is in a world where the world of work is often not designed with women's needs and aspirations, indeed in families' needs and aspirations, mm -hmm. because young men also face stereotypes, by the way, don't let's forget that, that sometimes by setting up your own business, by doing it for yourself, you can make the choices that you need to balance your family life. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Cherie Blair, CBE, QC, is a British barrister, lecturer and writer. She is married to former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, a mother of four, proud grandmother and founder of the Cherie Blair Foundation for Women. At the World Economic Forum this year, the foundation, which has already directly supported over 160,000 women across more than 100 lower and middle income countries since its inception in 2008, launched a new campaign to transform the lives of 100,000 more women. Intending to do this over the next three years through the foundation's technology and training offer, the foundation will work in countries including Nigeria, Mexico, Kenya, Indonesia and Vietnam to continue to contribute to the global movement to achieve economic gender equality and the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. The campaign has won high profile backing from influential figures including Hillary Rodham Clinton who describes advancing the rights, opportunities and full participation of women and girls as the great unfinished business of the 21st century. I was intrigued to find out more. I think if you'd asked anybody when I was born in, in 1954 whether I would end up a Queen's Council meeting three popes and living in 10 Downing Street, they would have said, there's not a chance in hell for a girl from my background to do any of those things because I grew up in a very ordinary home in Liverpool, just outside in the suburbs of Liverpool in a place called Waterloo. And possibly the only thing that was different from me and my peers who were at my Catholic primary and then grammar school were the fact that my father left my mother when I was eight which was a big scandal at the time, and it was very unusual in those days. It was before we had divorce law reform. And so living in a single-parent family with my mother living with her in-laws meant that I was brought up cocooned by a group of very strong women. And then in my grammar school days, I went to an all-girls grammar school. So I lived in this bubble, which made me think that there was nothing that a girl couldn't do if she didn't work hard and uh, got some lucky breaks. So that undoubtedly shaped your career trajectory. 
Obviously, it put a fire in your belly as well, right? It gave Very much so, yeah. drive and ambition and determination to kind of... I was very... trying to prove people wrong? Is I was very conscious that I only had one choice, uh, one chance, rather, that mm. for my mother and grandmother, who both left school at 14, who hadn't had those chances, the possibility that my sister and I could have the things that they could only wish for but didn't get the chance to even try for... Uh, it was a very powerful motivating factor and I was very conscious how much my mother had to sacrifice to make sure that my sister and I, you know, even had our school uniforms, let alone mm. opportunities to go on school trips or go to the theatre. She was an actress and she was very keen that we should be able to experience mm. uh, that. So, yes, I was very conscious that when I went to university, I was the first person in my family to go to university that meant I was the person everyone else had, certainly my own father who had to left school at 16 when his own father had an accident, you know. Everyone had worked and contributed to the family finances and I was going off to study with the luxury of a full grant to study and not contribute except when I worked during the summer yeah. holidays. Was there a pressure that came with that then, having, you know, being the first person in your family to go and study law and was it always going to be law because obviously you're from an acting background no it wasn't I, I had no idea what I was going to study I loved history I, I was very good at debating and, and drama and it was my boyfriend at the time his mum said to me you know Sheree you're, you're very good at arguing have you ever thought <laughs> of the law and it, it never occurred to me but I did know something about the law through someone called Rose Halbron who was a very famous daughter of Liverpool. She was the first woman QC. She came from Liverpool. She was a Jewish girl from Liverpool. She was very glamorous. She uh, she herself uh, was a working mother. And uh, my grandmother was a great admirer of Rose. And so I kind of thought, well, if one girl from Liverpool can do it, maybe this girl could too. But I had really no idea what that actually entailed. And to be fair, my mum and grandma had no idea what going to university entailed, which in some ways was a problem, and in other ways, of course, was a liberation, because I could basically say, I need to do this, and they had no idea whether that was really true or not. Mm, so mm. That, was, uh, that was useful. But it also led to things like us not realising that when you went to university, the university didn't just provide you with accommodation, you actually had to apply and find some. So I turned up at university only to discover that actually I had nowhere to live. <laughs> wow. So what did you do? <laughs> well, they, the, the first of all, the University of London found me a place in a convent uh, okay. a boarding place where they meant the other girls were doing teacher training and you had to be in at 10 o'clock. Was it still operational? It was still operating as a convent? It, wasn't, it was a convent place for Catholic girls who were studying at teacher training. Oh, college, I, like see, a, I see. And so I, um, I lasted there three days. <laughs> and I thought, having, having, been in a, having been in a convent school, I did, really didn't come down to London to live with nuns. No. So I managed to persuade the LSE because they put me up for a week in, during Freshers' Week in one of their halls of residence, and I managed to talk my way into a spare, into a spare place there. So mm. one of my first successful advocacy uh, experiences. So after university, embarking on the big wide world... What were your hopes and aspirations then? Well, the thing about university was that it turned out I actually was quite good at law. And so, in a sense, I always sailed through that as well. And I came top of my year, and then I went and did the bar finals, and I came top of that year. 
And so I was thinking, well, the nuns are right, you know, you work hard and everything goes well. And then I hit reality, and reality was uh, practicing in any profession in the mid 1970s as a woman meant that you were an exception, not the rule. There are only 10% of the students studying law were women, only 10% of the people called to the bar the year I was called to the bar were women. Did you, you feel know, in- did... intimidated by that? Or did it drive you on again? I think it drove me on. I don't know why somehow, I don't know what it is. I never actually, did I ever feel intimidated? Well, I certainly never showed that I was intimidated anyway. And I just thought, I'll just do it better than anyone else. And I was just determined to prove that I could do it. Because the alternative was, well, there, there was no alter, there was no safety net, if you, you like. You didn't have a plan B. I didn't really have a plan B. It was just about making sure plan A worked out. Is there a person or a moment along your career trajectory that stands out for you as a particularly pivotal thing? I mean, like you were referring to the QC that you knew in Liverpool as someone you could be inspired to become. Was she that for you? Or was there a moment where someone gave you an insight into part of law or part of where you could see your career going that inspired you? I think it was more, it, it was more, if you like, the shock of when at the end of my pupillage, my pupil master, Derry Irvin, said to me, Cherie, you know, there's only one place here and there's two candidates, a boy and a girl. Right. Obviously, we have to go for the girl. I mean, that was a bit of a shock Ooh. because the boy, even he agreed, was not as good a lawyer as I am. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, I think, thought he was the safer bet because they wanted to do more commercial law. That would be more acceptable. They saw me as someone who is much more involved in the Labour Party and passionate about social justice, wanting to do employment law and, and human rights. And I think they all thought, she's a young girl, she'll get married and, and, you know, give up. Of course, the reality was, I'm the one who continued in the law and still am a lawyer, and he, because it was Tony Blair, he's the one that buggered off after seven years and became a politician. <laughs> he was just much cleverer than I am to conceal his interest in politics. Right, okay. So you had, like you just referred to it, you had your own interest in politics. Was that complementary to your husband? How did that relationship work, I guess? I think it was one of the things that attracted us both to each other, I think, was one, a a passion for Labour Party politics, and the other actually was an interest in religion, which still remains uh, something that, that, that we care passionately about, about the good things, about religious belief, and the feeling that you're not just here for your own self-indulgence, that you're here yeah. to make a difference. That uh, still inspires us both today, I think. And you refer to, well, you wrote a book about your time in 10 Downing Street called The Goldfish Bowl. Was that how you felt, or what it was like? Well, The Goldfish Bowl actually wasn't about me. The Goldfish Bowl was about the previous spouses of prime ministers, and I did call it the goldfish ball, yes, because <laughs> that definitely was what it was like. And what was interesting in writing that book and talking to, I spoke, it starts with uh, Clarissa Eden and went and finished with Norma Major. Mm-hmm. But talking to all of, of them, including Dennis Thatcher, was that feeling that in Downing Street you are living in a goldfish bowl. And that's and how that you, wasn't that's just how you unique. Felt. That wasn't just unique to me, it was in fact to all of them who, for their time, if you like, were exposed to the, to the limelight of scrutiny, which was unusual for their time, even mm. though if you look back at the sort of scrutiny that I had in 97 and that you have today, absolutely, you'd think the scrutiny was not so great, and it wasn't so great in 1957, but nevertheless, for its time... Because you were one of the first wives or spouse of a prime minister mm. who had your own independent career. Mm. Were you conscious of that? Was that... 
Yes, the, the very, light very, shone on that. Very, very much so, I think. And the interesting thing was, I was actually the first spouse of the Prime Minister to have a university degree because mm. Dennis Thatcher didn't have one either. Oh, really? He went straight into business. And uh, I still am, well, no, that's unfair on Philip May, but certainly the only female spouse of a Prime Minister to work full time. Mm. How did you do it? <laughs> that's crazy. That's... It was crazy. It's a bit like you say, how did it? How did you? Um, how did you manage to break through into the law? You know, I just said I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it anyway. And you're a mother of four. Mother of four, yes. Wow, a genuine grandmother now wow. of three, oh with God. two more on oh. the way. <laughs> Congratulations. From that moment, obviously, you come out of Ten Downing Street. What has now inspired you to set up? Your own foundation. How did that come about? Your own foundation. Well, I think again, I throughout our lives, both Tony and I have always believed in looking forward, not back, mm -hmm. and not resting on our laurels. And I'd had this amazing opportunity in, in Ten Downing Street, not just to be a lawyer, mm -hmm. but to have this seat, this view of what was going on, not just in British politics but across the world. And in the course of that, I'd been lucky enough to meet some amazing people including many, many women who I met on my travels, whose positions were not the same as the positions of women in the UK in 2007, but were possibly more like either the position of women in 1976 when I started my career, or in mm. some places, like the positions of my mother and grandmother, where you know there were even less opportunities for women. And yet these women were determined to, to make something for themselves and for their families and to change their lives and have a knock-on effect on their communities. And so I felt, is there something that I can do as a self-employed barrister? I am an entrepreneur in the sense that, you know, I, I, I eat what I kill. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I might use that. <laughs> and I was very conscious at the time, because I've always been very interested in technology, that because of technology, I'd been able to carry on my career and do things which I wouldn't have possibly perhaps been able to do 10, 20 years earlier. And I thought mm -hmm. if technology can help a fortunate women like myself, what could it do to yeah. accelerate the process for the women in low and middle income countries that I was, was meeting, who were, all had fantastic ideas about how to change their future. So that's what I decided to do. I think the other side of that was I'd also gone round and I'd met women like me and men as well in the UK, in Europe, in the US, who were very keen also to help women, not in the sense of giving them handouts, but giving them the hand up, yeah. giving them the tools so that they could determine what was best for themselves rather than telling them what was best for themselves. And I thought, can we link these two together and somehow help women accelerate the process of change, which is absolutely needed in yeah. the world. And that's how we set up the foundation. Uh, 2008, we didn't really start our programmes till 2009, 2010. Since then, we have reached 160,000 women in over 100 different countries by using technology to help give business skills training, access to networks and access to mentoring to women across the world. So it's about achieving economic gender equality predominantly, what are the main barriers that you find that women affect? There must be an awful lot. But... Well, there are, but I think you can, you, can, you can identify some that are very, very common throughout. And the first thing I should say is that 
there is something called the World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Report, and that started, I was still in Downing Street, and I went to the original launch of it, and every year they give a snapshot of what the global gender gap is between men and women across the world, not all the countries in the world, but most of the countries in the OECD, for example. Mm -hmm. And they look at it on four areas. They look at it on health, education, political power, and economic power. And what we've seen is the gap narrowing, so it's 90%-ish in health and education. It may not be great education, it may not be great health, but at least men and women are getting equal access, or near equal. Nine out of ten yeah, is still not yeah. good enough. No. But when you look at the thing, well, what really makes the world go round? Politics? Still rubbish, less than 30%. And in the economy, economic field, it's been hovering around the 60% difference between men, men and women, if you like. So yeah. every six women, they get access to every 10 men. And this last year, all the indices, those four indices, all three of them progressed. One, which was the economic opportunities, regressed. So in 2018, the report said it would take 202 years before women reached equality in the economic sphere. And this year it said it's going to be 257. So that's a 55-year... That's heartbreaking. So, you know, we're not, uh, we're not succeeding and we no. have to do more to make that happen. Now, why, why is that? Well, there are a number of, of issues, if, if you like. For a start, there are things that, to do with women's lives. So we still, you know, there is a gap in education. So society doesn't necessarily educate the girls as well. Often in, in society, women are in the low-paid occupations. Now, are they low-paid because they're dominated by women? Or, or well, that's an issue. But then there are the big issues around childcare. I mean, women still share, not just childcare, actually, the caring responsibilities fall disproportionately on women in every country in the world, whether we're in the nirvanas of Sweden, the Scandinavian countries, or in the places that jog along at the bottom in some parts of Africa mm. and in the Middle East. And then on top of all that is society's expectations of women. And the idea is that the women's place is in the home. Yes, exactly. In relation to... Um, we did a survey just this year among the people on our... We have a mentoring platform, which brings together, as I said, those people of goodwill, if you like, in the higher-income countries who are prepared to give two hours a month to mentor a woman entrepreneur that we identify who's got a good business idea or a way of expanding her business to help her by giving her two hours a month of guidance and and being the listening ear that they need. Um, now, we did a survey and 700-odd of the women on that platform, either currently or in the past, answered. And we asked them, for example, had they experienced gender stereotypes? Surprisingly... Well, perhaps not surprisingly, mm. you know, these three quarters of them identified that as an issue. Over 30% of them said one of the issues was this idea that women should be in the home. Another quite high scorer was that women just don't do business. They're not mm. good with money, which, you know, is laughable when you think of how women in the domestic household <laughs> absolutely yeah. manage money. So that attitude of what, what is appropriate for women is an attitude which manifests itself here, for example, in the still lack of female CEOs. I mean, we are making progress, but really in those higher positions. We are making progress in the, the law in relation to more women judges, but we're still not anywhere near equal opportunity in, in those areas. And we're getting it 
in countries where we work in across the world where there are literally legal barriers to women doing yeah. certain jobs, where there are legal barriers to women earning property, where women on less than their male siblings, where we could, yeah. we could go on for, so, so forever. So do some women not want to be saved, for want of a better word? Because I know I make documentaries with the BBC and we do things with sex trafficking and things like that, which I know is kind of the other end of the spectrum. But sometimes when you go to these girls, they don't want to be saved. It's all they've ever known. It's an intrinsic part of their identity. As a woman, they feel that it's just been passed down and this is their life now. So do you ever face barriers in regards to that kind of attitude? I would never, ever want to save anyone. What I want to do is give people choices. And the truth is that women often don't have that many choices. And so they don't actually have the options to decide for themselves how they want to manage and change their future. Mm. And what we see in relation to uh, women's economic empowerment, and in particular into entrepreneurship, is in a world where the world of work is often not designed with women's needs and aspirations, indeed in families' needs and aspirations, mm-hmm. because young men also face stereotypes, by the way, don't let's forget that, that sometimes by setting up your own business, by doing it for yourself, you can make the choices that you need to balance your family life with your aspiration to make a difference economically to your own situation or to make a difference in your local community. It's interesting when we look at the people that we work with in our foundation, with our programs of business training, Many of them are in traditional profit-making businesses, but there are also a proportion of them who are in social enterprises. So they, they combine the desire, if you like, mm. to economically better themselves with a desire to make a difference in their society. It's about giving women choices and then having a real choice. If you're a, a girl, as we know, in the middle of... Vietnam in some rural area where there is no work and someone comes to you and says there's an opportunity to work in Europe Mm. you think this may be the chance to earn some money send money back your choices are pretty limited it's to take a chance yeah it's going to work out or stay with the same yeah and then they get here and for some some of them I hope I hope some of them actually the promises are not untrue but for many of them what they face is pretty bleak it's pretty bleak. It's, it's rape, it's degradation, so that then they feel that that's all, that they, all the choices that are, that are open to them. And for those, as you say, who are, in inverted commas, rescued, mm. they often just get on a roundabout where they get sent home, where they're shunned because of what's happened. The cycle starts again. And off, often they go again. Mm. We have to do something to break that cycle. Yeah, but it's, it's not about saving people it's about giving people real choices options real options Mm -hmm. and letting them make those decisions rather than just letting circumstances make those decisions for them one of your supporters hillary clinton i watched the video that's on your website said advancing the rights opportunities and full participation of women and girls is the great unfinished business of the 21st century she kind of hit the nail on the head with that hasn't she she absolutely has and for me it's um and I know one of the questions you do ask is, you know, what about your, your failures? Yeah, you know, yeah. when, I, when I started in, in 1976, 
we'd seen just various legal things had changed as a young lawyer. The Domestic Violence Act had come in, and I did a lot of cases around that. The Equal Pay Act had come into force, Sex Discrimination Act. And honestly, I thought, this is it. We're definitely, we're finally going to change the world. You know, and here we are, 40 years on. Now, of course it's better. Of course it's better. We take domestic violence a lot more seriously. We haven't cracked equal pay, but it's better. 16% is better than the 20 to 30% that it was mm. then. We don't have full sex equality, but at least we, we are setting ourselves targets. At least we're conscious about it. At least we're looking to see, you know, we're not just ignoring it and mm-hmm. accepting it as inevitable. So these things have changed, but have we done enough? No, we haven't. <laughs> I cannot believe that women's economic opportunity will not be something if we stay where we are today it mm-hmm. will be achieved not just in my lifetime but even in my granddaughter's lifetime it's not good enough it's not good enough okay so that's failure <laughs> what would you describe as your greatest success well i know it sounds cheesy but somehow or other to have managed to maintain my career and still bring up for reasonably well adjusted <laughs> adults who I'm glad to say in their different ways all wanting to and are giving back. As a mother of a three-year-old, can you give me one tip for being a parent? <laughs> Just one little like, tip bit of information that can help. Don't beat yourself up too much. Be a kinder to yourself. No, you know, you're, mm. no one is superwoman. And, you know, you, we, we women, we just love to feel guilty. So here we are sitting at work feeling guilty that uh, we're About not everything. there. <laughs> and then we go we go home and we are with our kids and we're feeling guilty that we're not doing the best we can in our jobs. Mm. We have to stop expecting ourselves to be superwomen. You know, you can have everything you want, but not necessarily all at the same time. It may be a process where mm. it ebbs and flows in, in, in different areas. And we need to be a bit more like men. Men don't beat themselves up constantly about how they're failures. This is true. They tend to actually rather congratulate themselves on their successes. Now, they may be a bit too over-optimistic and we're <laughs> a bit too over-pessimistic. Between the two of us, mm. and that's why diverse workforces, diversity is key, maybe we can come up with a happy medium where we don't get the recklessness that led to Lehman Brothers and we don't get yes. the cautiousness that maybe if it had been Lehman Sisters, it wouldn't have worked either. I like that. <laughs> so you've been involved with the Women of the Future for a very long time. I think from, the, from its founding. Yeah, the inception yeah. of the Asian Women Awards. Um, their mantra is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you? Well, first of all, it means pinky to me. <laughs> uh, because no one who's involved with these awards can possibly ignore the fact that it's the character of these awards reflects the character of Pinky Lilani. Kindness is one of the first things you would think about, about Pinky. And when it comes to collaboration, uh, she's not only collaborative, but she is also incredible at getting people to do things for her. You can't say no to her, can <laughs> you? You can't say no to Pinky, which is why I was happy to say yes at the Asian Women, to become patron of the Asian Women Achievement Awards. And when she said, I want to do something about particularly younger women, mm-hmm. will, you, will you help me with Women of the Future? How could you say no? And it's a great thing. You meet so many fantastic young women. And of course, part of its mission is the whole mentoring and networking, which is what my foundation 
is replicating around the world in the lower middle income countries. Because what we learn, what we know, what we do here, we know equally applies everywhere. But when you're a woman in business, sometimes just to have, to rely a little on the help of your friends can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Is there anything that scares you? No. <laughs> nothing at all, nothing at all. Spiders. I refuse to be scared. <laughs> Spiders? No. <laughs> Except, well, what scares me is the thought that the world might be going backwards, actually. That's a terrifying thought. That is a terrifying mm. thought. And that's why we need to do everything we can, whether it's through Women of the Future, whether it's the work we're doing in my foundation, to, to say that is not going to happen. Not on my watch. So what's left? What's left? So much. Uh, as I said to you when I came in, I've just been listening to my husband talking about the future of the Labour Party and its 120th anniversary. There are so, there are so many challenges in the world and we need to rise to those challenges, which can be daunting, but it's also very exciting because the world is there for us to shape it as we want to be. As we say in our 100,000 Women campaign, because my foundation having reached 160,000 women, is looking to reach a further 100,000 in the next three years by raising 10 million pounds, mere nothing. <laughs> and what we say is we want to help women to shape their future, to de redefine the future in a way that works for them. And that's whether you're in Tanzania, Mexico, or here in the city of London. It's not too much to ask for and we should stop apologising for just wanting the right to determine our own future. Alongside, of course, the men who, after all, we do, generally speaking, yeah. know and love them. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute honour. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.